that's recording there. And that's recording there. Okay. Well, I will just state for the record then, so we have it on the uh, recording, that my name is Michelle Marino, and this is Ben Bauman, and we are sitting down with Charlie Brown, and today's date is Friday, January 24th, Fourth, yeah. yes, 2020, and we are at his home in Gary, Indiana. Um, so I just wanted to start by asking, when and where were you born? I was born in Williston, South Carolina. Uh, my obviously my parents left there when I was two years old so I have no recollection of my hometown I was raised in Philadelphia Pennsylvania that's where I spent uh, I used to say a majority of my life but majority of my life has now been in, <laughs> in Gary Indiana mm -hmm. um, and how, how come they relocated it was just something that all the movies, the historical movies, tell you that that most African Americans left the South because of the horrible treatment in the South, and one relative obviously had migrated to uh, the northern uh, uh, states and would always say, "Oh, y'all, come on up. There's mm -hmm. employment, there's good accommodations, etc." So that was the reason my parents left, yeah. following, uh, I think, uh, my, my mother's sister at that time. Okay. Um, and what were your parents' names? Charlie, Charlie Brown and Ruth Brown. Okay. And what was her maiden name? Hickson. Hickson. That is the more historical name, Hickson. All of my relatives, uh, most of the uh, still uh, living ones are in the South, in Augusta, Georgia. Is that H-I-C-K-S-O-N, Hickson. Okay. Um, and so had both of your parents grown up in South Carolina then? In, in Georgia. In Georgia. Yes. And then they came to South Carolina and then? Yes. Okay. What were your parents' occupations? Uh, my mother was a homemaker. Mm -hmm. My father was in the cleaning business, uh, cleaning clothes okay. business, in fact. Uh, he left. I, I, I didn't grow up with a father. It was just my mother, my sister, and I. And my father left Philadelphia when I was very, I was still, I was eight or nine years old. And he moved to Los Angeles, California, where he started his own business, a, a clothes cleaning business. Okay. And so you mentioned a sister. Was that the only sibling you had? Yes, or? just the two of us. Is she older than you? She's a year and eight months. She was a year and eight months, so she's gone on now. Mm -hmm. And what was her name? Uh, you, uh, Jean. Anna Jean Brown. Uh, her uh, married name, Anna Jean Butcher. Okay. How would you describe your childhood? I would think it was very normal. I, I you know, growing up in Philadelphia and in the, the that far back, I'm 81 now, close to 82. There were no issues about children in the neighborhood. The neighborhood was a rallying cry. You know, we didn't have the issues of being afraid to go outside and play. It was just like some of the commercials say, you better be home when that street light comes on, you know, because we'd go outside and play all day long. So it was like a close knit. Oh yes, yes. Yeah. If you, if a neighbor told, a neighbor would probably pop you on the head or, or spank you doing something wrong, and also tell your parents. So it was like a double whammy. Yeah. Okay. Um, and 
were the most influential people in your childhood? My uncle, my mother's uh, younger brother, Isaac Hickson. Uh, in fact, it was three, three of my, uh, my mother, her brother Isaac Hickson and her sister Rebecca Pryor all lived on the same block in, in Olney Street in Philadelphia. So, you know, it was everybody was so close-knitted at that time. So he, Isaac Hickson, was like a father, was like a father to me. Did you have cousins and things growing up next to you, or? Yes, mm -hmm. yes. Okay. Well, what understanding, if any, did you have about your family's politics or political beliefs as a young kid? None, in fact, except for one. When Ro uh, President Roosevelt died, and I was still very young, and I walked into my mother's bedroom and she was crying. And that, that was why, because she was sad over the death of President Roosevelt at that point. That was all, <laughs> it's another commercial similar to this, where then it wasn't, everybody, there wasn't that television in the house, let alone every room like it is now. And so it, it, your uh, entertainment and um, news was through the radio. And it was nothing unusual for everyone to gather around the radio to get, get the news or to listen to one of the myriad of stories that was on at that time. Uh -huh. And maybe, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm not sure if I caught this at the beginning, but you said you were born in South Carolina, but did you say, what was your birth date? 3-8-38, March 8th, 1938. Okay. Would you have any early memories of World War II? I mean, you mentioned Roosevelt, but as a young child? We were far removed from war at that time. I remember Pearl Harbor. I remember because that was a very explosive period of time. Uh, and then you would hear of soldiers coming home, occasionally watching, seeing a soldier uh, on the streets with they, in their uniforms. And that was probably about the extent of uh, engagement in war. Well, moving towards your educational background, what schools did you attend as a child and as a teenager? My elementary school, we lived right across the street from my elementary school. I, I remember so uh, vividly, um, I'm going into kindergarten, and so I was up and my mother dressed me, I, I, I'm totally oblivious of school at that point, and uh, she dressed me and we went to the corner, crossed over and went into the school. And I was excited to be in there with all these kids, but she wanted to leave me there. I thought that we were just in the building to do something. <laughs> and boy, did I cry. And I remember my classmates were on the floor painting and they had newspapers on, on the floor so the, the paint wouldn't get on the floor. And she started to leave and leave me there. And I ran across some of that and fell and slipped and I remember having paint all over my, my clothing and my body because I was not to be left in that school. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And what about middle school? Was the adjustment easier shifting for the... Well, a middle school was farther away. Yeah, that's another interesting thing that uh, we, we, I walked to middle school and it was quite a distance uh, from where I lived. But nonetheless, there was no issue of going through various 
neighborhoods and streets, whatever, during, during those years. When I went on to high school, <coughs> excuse me, I did have to catch the bus because it was, it wasn't many neighborhood schools other than the elementary school. Right. And I said I had to walk a distance to, to middle, we call it junior high school. Right. Mm -hmm. But in the case of high school, and it, it was no, you were desert. If you lived in this area, you were designated to go to the school. You made a choice as to what school you wanted, mm -hmm. and you had to get there. So I, my choice was to go to this all boys school, uh, Northeast High School, which was uh, quite a ways away. In fact, I had to catch two trolleys or buses, I think, in order to get there. Were the schools integrated? Oh in yeah. Oh, very much so. In fact, uh, the elementary school was not, the middle school was not, but high schools, mm -hmm. m m all of the high schools, I think, were well integrated at that time. And what was the name of your high school? Northeast High School. So why did you choose to go to an all-boys school? Now that is, I don't know. I really, <laughs> I really, yeah, you know, you look like you want to be around the girls at that time. Yeah. But, uh, I, oh, I know why. Northeast High was known for its athletic prowess okay. at, at yeah. that time. <clears throat> sure. So how would you describe your educational experiences throughout your school career? Um, it, it, was, it was very, very challenging, uh, mainly because, you know, I, I wasn't that much into geometry and trigonometry. First of all, backing up to junior high school, I was unaware that I was excelling in, in, um, in junior high school. Right. When I got to high school, we, everybody's in this auditorium freshman, and they were calling out names and sending you to whatever class you were going to be in. I looked around, and there were very few of us left in the auditorium. <clears throat> because they had it designated, the, the one section was the, the, the boys that ex had excelled and we were in a kind of accelerated group. Right. And at that point, there were only two, maybe, maybe there was, no, only two of us uh, African Americans mm -hmm. were in this, going into this accelerated freshman class. Ah, uh, okay. Wow. Um, which kind of frightened me to see that everybody, most of the people, boys in the auditorium had gone on to their class. But I, I, in fact, I even asked him, I said, well, what about me? You know, um, and he says, well, you, you'll find out in, in a minute. And we went on to this uh, group and boy, it was, it was different, mainly because we had trigonometry and uh, algebra advanced that so we were kind of right different than other ones yeah okay did you have any favorite subjects in school math math yeah okay i always enjoyed math nice what about extracurriculars what, what did you do basketball 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 just <laughs> love love basketball what position did you play? Center. Center. I mean, and now you rarely will find a guard right. at my, my height. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, but I was tall by comparison then. And um, 
plate center. Um, that, that was a different experience too because even though the, the school was majority white, African Americans probably dominated the, the sports at that right. time. I mean, were, were considered the, the star, always on the starting team. Right. You can put it that way. Yeah, okay. <clears throat> Did you guys have a good program, a, bas a good basketball career oh, in high yes. school? Oh, yes. Uh, in fact, <clears throat> there were rivalries out of this world. Uh, <laughs> and really interesting that there were uh, some top athletes that came out. Uh, I don't know if the name Herb Adderley means anything to you all. He went on, he played football. He, he excelled in basketball, football, and track. Mm -hmm. And he went on, he chose the football, and he played for the Green Bay Packers. Oh, wow. Uh, and, and in fact, I remember when they retired his jersey um, from the Green Bay Packers. Um, and then there was Guy Rogers, who professional basketball and he played for the Philadelphia 76ers and wow. the Golden State Warriors. Oh, wow. uh, I, I think about, here's the most interesting story of all. Ed Bradley, mm -hmm. who recently died, he was on 60 Minutes. We went to college together. Oh, am I getting too far? No, no that's good. Yeah. <laughs> we went to college together, Cheney State Teachers College. Uh, now, we are the oldest institution of higher learning for African Americans in the entire United States. Even though Howard gets credit for that, Howard University in, in D.C., it, that's because Cheney, C-H-E-Y-N-E-Y, -E was not in the historical black college because it was a part of uh, the state's uh, higher ed, ed uh, um, group and yeah. it, it was it was there because of the 13 colleges in the in the Pennsylvania groups Cheney was the one that was predominantly for African Americans and at the time that I was in college you only had three choices uh, elementary ed industrial arts or home economics so that meant that um, I was in, uh, my major was elementary ed, but one of the students there was Ed Bradley, who recently, I think it's been gone now about eight, ten years. Uh, and interesting story about him, we, as I stated, we were elementary ed majors, mm -hmm. but he volunteered from, from Cheney to go out on when they were having some kind of riots in Philadelphia and he volunteered to go out and interview people uh, and from that he then went to being a disc jockey on the radio and then uh, sports, he covered sports for CBS because uh, he would come out this way many, yeah. many a day and ultimately winding up on 60 Minutes. And you know, I'm, I, and there, there are probably hundreds or more of uh, my classmates or my fellow Cheneyites that we at this small, very small uh, teachers' college 
but branched out into all kinds of professions, you know. And it, it Bradley stands out simply because trained as an elementary ed teacher winds up on 60 Minutes, a national television show. Wow, that's really neat. Wow. So, yeah, go ahead. And then uh, college, I'm about to graduate now from um, Cheney in 1961. Mm -hmm. Right before graduation, there are some recruiters from the Gary uh, School System, the Gary Community School Corporation, on the Eastern Shore recruiting uh, elementary ed teachers. Well, I had two real close buddies. The three of us were always together. Uh, I excelled. I was the captain of the basketball team, the other one captain of the football team, the other one captain of the track, track team. Wow. And we were just buddies. We joined the same fraternity. Now, the, the rec recruiters are there, and the dean of men stopped us. We were on our way to dinner one night, and he says, when y'all finish dinner, come on back down to the, uh, the lounge. There's some recruiters here trying to get uh, teachers. Didn't pay much attention to that because it was unheard of for someone to think of packing up and moving <coughs> from, from your, your home to, uh, to uh, mid-America. Mid, mid, uh, mid so we went down and they introduced themselves to assistant superintendents from the Gary School System and they interviewed us and we, at least I blase through the interview because I know that, yeah, I'll, I'll listen to you and I'll answer your questions and so forth. They wanted us to sign contracts on the spot. I said, hold up. And I, <laughs> I said, you know, this takes a lot of, of thinking. I, it, it was the farthest thing from my mind to think about leaving Philadelphia and moving to a place I had never heard of, Gary, Indiana. I don't even think, I don't know if the music man was out there. That was the only reference I had to Gary, Indiana. Sure. So, we, all three of us, had, uh, had the contracts that they wanted us to sign. They said, well, take your time, talk to your parents, then send them, mail us the, the contracts. And all three of us had basically the same thoughts, you know, I'm not thinking about leaving Philadelphia. The hook was the fraternity that we were members of was founded at Indiana University. Oh. And in 1961, it was celebrating its 50th anniversary. So that was kind of a big thing, you know, we wanted to come out for the 50th year celebration. Sure. So then it clicked, hmm, we want to go to Bloomington to the Kappa celebration. We could go on, then go, go on to Gary, Indiana, which can't be, we don't have, have a sense of uh, <laughs> geography. If Gary can't be that far away, we then could go on to Gary and teach for a year and come on back home. That was the master plan in 1961. <laughs> oh, I still have to shake my head in thinking about, about that, how young folk rationalize things. So we came here. All three of you came? All th oh, wait, oh, there's another hook in here. Two of us were elementary ed. The other one was an industrial arts major. They, the recruiters didn't want weren't interested yeah. so when they kept calling regularly and we now here we are bothering with them we said well you know you offered 
two of us jobs, but there's a fr now friend, the third one, he, he, you didn't offer him a job as an industrial officer. He said, hold on, just, I'm, I'm, I'm really cutting it short. Hold on, we'll, get, we'll find something. They called back in a couple of uh, uh, days. We found, he, he has an offer also, so send all three contracts. They found the job for him. Oh my gosh. Yes. I, and here's a very, very interesting thing, unbeknownst to us at the time. 61 was our first year, and uh, I taught through 68. Through that period of seven years, Gary was the highest paying school system in the entire United States. Wow. At that point, uh, I think Philadelphia was paying $49,000 for a first year teacher. They don't even make that today. <laughs> Philadelphia, I mean, Gary was paying 5050 which was the highest salary in, in, for a first-year wow. teacher. So we said, we all agreed. One of them, who's still here with me, Eugene Johnson, who's a, a, a retired from the school system, had an old beat-up car <clears throat> that we packed up and drove to Bloomington. And then uh, the other interesting thing was the school system had a, a, a set up through um, homeowners or from built people that had uh, apartments for rent. All we had to do was show up. They had found us an apartment. All we had to do was go in there, hang up our clothes, and get ready to go to work, which was really intriguing to me. I don't know if that happened across the country at that time, and for certain, I don't, I don't even know if it happens today with anyone. But we came in here, and that first year, we were having fun. It was like an extension of college life. You know, we were the, the big three on campus. We come here, and the word spread in Gary, Indiana. There are three young men from Philadelphia that are just, you got to see them. You know, they. <laughs> so, I mean, we'd even see uh, cars driving down our street and pointing up to, this. that's where they live, up there. Wow. That first year went by, we were having so much fun, uh, we said, well, maybe we need to stay another year. Because that first year, it's summertime, we were supposed to be going back home, and we were just having fun, and when, it hadn't even crossed our mind that the, the year's up. And one year turned into two, and two into three, and so forth. Finally, um, 1967, the end of the school year, I said, for certain, I'm out of here. I had brought my college sweetheart out here. We were, and she uh, uh, didn't much like the small town living compared to Philadelphia. And in 19, the spring break of 1967, we had made arrangements to go back to Philadelphia and uh, we, uh, apply for teaching jobs there. The only thing that that threw that out of whack was. I got active in, I was active in the teachers union. In fact, I was the building representative and also a, one of the officers of the, of the teachers union here in Gary. And uh, uh, Richard Hatcher decided to run for mayor in 1967. One of the, his campaign managers was also a teacher and he came to me and asked, 
uh, since I was in the union to try to organize teachers to support Hatcher for mayor. And at that point, teachers were kind of standoffish in politics. It was beneath them to, to be involved in politics. But the little small organization I pulled together, we were very successful in getting a considerable number of teachers to, to support him for, for mayor. He won. He was about to take office in uh, uh, January of uh, 1968. Uh, I'm planning on leaving April of uh, 67 to go back to Philadelphia to, to find a, a job. <coughs> right before the spring break, I get a call from his office say, asking me to come down to City Hall on my lunch break. I'm thinking, well, they want us to try to keep that teachers group together mm -hmm. since, uh, you know, it's not a one-time deal. I get down there and he offers me a job with this administration. I said, wow, I, uh, what do I do? I'm shocked, in fact, uh, uh, mainly because I'm thinking about, I'm getting out of here. I'm going back home to Philadelphia. Uh, <clears throat> I offered a lot of excuses. I said, wow, um, I don't know anything about municipal government. Well, Gary was an urban laboratory at that point, the first African-American mayor of a major city. I mean, there were just all kinds of technical assistance available. You could walk into his office and there were grants laying all around, you know, where people were offering uh, assistance to make sure that he was successful. Um, I said, well, they said, that's not a problem. We can get you the technical assistance. I said, well, I'm under contract with, for the school system. I'm offering all kinds of... They said, uh, the mayor picked up the phone and called a school board member and said, can a teacher get a, a leave of absence? And ultimately the answer was yes. Uh, I, I ran out of excuses or, or trying to roadblocks to, to get away from this. I said, well, let me talk this over with my wife. Um, and well, I told her what had happened and she says, well, if you want to try, we can stay. And boy, that was the beginning of the end for me in terms of a, a education that was not formal like getting a college degree. You know, I know as a teacher, we had a lesson plan book that Monday through Friday from 8 to 3 or whatever the time was, you knew hour by hour, four to five days, exactly what you were going to do. Totally different in municipal government. I mean, it was just helter skelter. You, you, and it was not 8 to, eight to 3. It was work until the work is done. And boy, it was like baptismal fire there in terms of my experience, and it was the most unique experience that I will I will never ever forget. Um, and so, <clears throat> it, it it also creates hardships on families too, because uh, I I three four years in I we I was divorced from my first wife because it was. No bringing her along with what's all going on in your new life because both of us are teachers and knew about the structure of that, but this, my goodness. Um, 
So I'm now divorced and uh, I had, I, I must have had two or three jobs in Hatcher's administration, each one of them very similar, but it was a different grant each time from, from uh, the mayor's assistant on youth programs to the Youth Services Bureau to risk manager, all of those things over, over his, his period of, in office from um, 68 through the whole 20 years that he's in office, I'm a part of his administration. Did you find that you could take skills that you had as a teacher into this new work, or how did you feel about trying to do that structure of okay hour by hour here's what I need to try to accomplish in this new job but that was the extent of it you know yeah you just had to to fly by the seat of your pants um, in municipal government mm -hmm. boy hmm. wow yeah. and so now um, now I'm down to uh, to uh, 1982, 81, I'm saying, I'm definitely going back home. I'm getting out of here and going back to Philadelphia. All of a sudden it comes up, Charlie Brown would be an excellent choice to run for state rep, state representative for the third district because the guy that was in there wasn't, uh, he and the mayor didn't get along too well. I said, oh no, no, not me. <laughs> I am, I love politics, was always engaged in politics, but behind the scene, I never even viewed myself as an elected official. Mm -hmm. I didn't like certain ties. Uh, uh, I was always viewed as a rebel because I carried a big bag, a uh, shoulder bag, just wasn't doing the normal things. So, mm -hmm. And I always had support from some of the mayor's top assistants because he said, well, he's working in youth programs. He shouldn't be in a certain tie all the time. I said, Lord, thank you on that. <laughs> so I got pressure then for go ahead and run for the state rep seat. We will support you financially, whatever. I said, that, that just is not me. And it kept going on. And I said, okay, I'll, I did it more as a dare. I didn't think that I could win, you know, not being suited for that. Suited meaning. Yeah. <laughs> but I won. I did it as a dare and I won. I said, now I'm, I'm thinking about going home, I'm home, back to Philadelphia, and here is the second time I'm, uh, I get a challenge that I accept and, and that prevents me from going back. I said, boy, I guess it just was not meant for me to get back home to Philadelphia. <laughs> well, what shaped your political outlook? Like as you're starting to get into elected positions and obviously being a part of um, Mayor Hatcher's um, administration, yeah. you know, what was your political outlook at the time? It was mainly, I, that's interesting because I, I, I hadn't even thought about then what would be my concentration as a state rep, as a state representative? But somehow, I, I had served on the uh, Gary Community Health, um, Gary Community Mental Health Center. Uh, in fact, there's that picture. I thought there was a picture up there of me and Hatcher and uh, Rose, Rose and Carter. Uh, and I, 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 uh, oh, it's back here, I think. Yeah. Yeah. 
um, mental health at that, in that early 80s, I guess, was being driven because there were major, major health, mental health issues. And I, I, uh, we started out uh, in, a, in a storefront with this uh, mental health um, agency and Rosalind Carter driving that issue that this feds put a lot of money into this whole issue. In fact, we, that was a groundbreaking for uh, the Gary Community Mental Health Center that was built here in Gary. And so health, uh, I just got into health and that was my foundation in the General Assembly from, from my, my beginnings to the time I walked out the door. I had a keen interest in improving the quality of health in the state of Indiana. Um, well, I was jumping around a little bit. Yeah, no. jump back. Sure. Um, so, I guess you talked about how when you first moved to Gary, Indiana, you sort of had heard of Gary a little bit. What about Indiana as a state in general? Did you know much about Indiana or Hoosers or? No. No. In fact, <laughs> it took a long time before we, the three of us. Oh, by the way, not just the three of us came. There were thirteen of us that came from Cheney State Teachers College at that point that accepted the challenge of coming halfway across the country. And, and we were all teased about our kind of um, Eastern accent. Yeah. You know, that was a long way from what, how the way people talk here. Yeah. <laughs> oh, boy. You know, and, you know, they kind of viewed us as um, kind of snooty simply because of the way we talk. Right. I kind of lost my, uh, I think, Eastern accent now. <laughs> well, you've been here long enough yes. at this point, right. I think, so. Um. so. But no, I didn't, I knew absolutely knew nothing about yeah. Indiana at that point. So before you got to Indiana and you were in college, you mentioned that you, you played basketball in college as well. Yes. And were you a part of any other clubs or organizations in college? Uh, nothing other than fraternity, very right. very active in the fraternity. And what was the name of the fraternity? You said Kappa. But... Kappa Alpha Psi. Okay. Um, I think we have a historical marker for that. Yeah. Um, sorry, did you have any others? Um, I guess it's talking more about your college experiences. Um, sort of big picture. Did you really enjoy college? What was it, you know what was your takeaway from it? Integral part of my life. Mm -hmm. I mean, here. When you think about a small, very small state teachers college, 99.9% .9 of the students are African Americans, um, knowing full well that, you know, that, that, that all of the teachers drove us to how important uh, teachers are. You know, uh, and it's still hard to, to, to understand how it is that teachers are so very, very low on the totem pole in terms of compensation. Mm -hmm. If teachers teach lawyers, teachers teach doctors, you know, all of the other professions that that uh, are compensated much much higher than than teachers. But it, that was the major focus that you, you you're the foundation of of, uh, of life for all of the those little kids that are grow, going going to grow up. You know, so you have to make sure that you are the cream of the crop in terms of 
teaching. Yeah. Um, what about in college? Did you start to develop any political ideas? Or no. 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 None whatsoever. No interest. Yeah. Okay. Well, did you? I know you said there were sort of limited options in terms of what you could do once you got to Cheney yes. State. But what made you decide to be a teacher to begin with? I, I when I graduated, college was not in my my background, my family's background. In fact, I think I was one of the first ones to go to college. I graduated and I immediately uh, found a job in the U.S. Postal System. Uh, in terms of uh, mail carriers sorting the mail for mm -hmm. the uh, for the guys going to deliver it out on the street, mm -hmm. and was content with that. Except mm -hmm. that another friend of mine, who graduated a year after I did, mm -hmm. who had a different background, he had six or seven brothers and sisters, and all of them had gone to college, and he was the youngest, so it was kind of ingrained in him that you also going to go uh -huh. to college. He was going out to Cheney to register, and he asked me to go along with him. I was off from work that, that, that Saturday, I guess, and so I went out there and saw that campus. I said, wow, man, this is something I would like to do as well. I went back home that day and told my mother, I want to go to college. You know, that, and wow. it was that kind of basically, simply seeing that, and it was a very small college as I stated, it was all the classrooms and the dorms were on a, a quadrangle. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was just breathtaking to me. I said, no, I've got to go. Yeah. College was not that expensive, but at that, back then in the uh -huh. 50s, uh, in fact, um, uh, when I went in 57, I think, 56 or 57, I graduated in 56 and I, I spent a year in the post office uh -huh. and then, uh, <clears throat> so uh, even though there wasn't much money in the house between my mother, I wasn't saving much in my, my first year in, in the postal system, but mm -hmm. uh, we scrapped together and got the money together for me to uh, register mm -hmm. there and Katie by the door. That was really, uh, those four years were very, very, are very, very valuable to me now. The relationships. I still, every week, once a week, even to the, as we speak, there are three of my friends that I went to school with in, in Cheney that we on the telephone to uh, talking wow. talking to one another, uh, and the and the one that is still here. So between the four of them, there's some kind of communications on a weekly basis between That's us. That's great. Yeah. My wife marvels at uh, the fact that there's that kind of relationship yeah. after all these years. Yeah, yeah for sure. Well, um, you mentioned. Um, you married your, your first wife, and she was from Cheney State, too, and she was a teacher. Did you have children? Yes, one daughter. One daughter. Uh, my precious daughter. I didn't have a, a, a son, so I named her, we named her Char, Char I got half of my name in there, Charlisa. Uh -huh. um, and um, she, uh, she came, went through the school systems here and then she went to Spelman College in uh, Georgia, mm -hmm. 
then she came back here and went to IU Med School. Okay. And this is something I will be forever angry with um, IU Med that and they 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 kind of catered to me because I was chair of the public health committee and all of their uh, wants had to come through my committee. But my daughter went through the three years of the classroom and even did her rotations, but she could she had difficulty passing the um, what's that test that the doctors have? The, the MCATs? No, the MCAT is that prepares you, I think. Whatever that exam is that they have to get to, yeah. to be licensed. She had difficulty with that. And so she was eligible to graduate, but just like lawyers, you know, you don't, you can't practice law until you pass the, the, the law's uh, exam. Mm -hmm. Uh, but Indiana had a policy of their own that you don't even graduate unless you uh, have passed the the MCAT or M whatever that yeah. Yeah. I'm losing. <laughs> yeah, right. And so she did all of the classroom work, but never ever completed uh, so that she could practice medicine. Mm -hmm. So the uh, she messed around. Uh, not messed around. <laughs> she worked for a couple of the pharmaceutical companies. Yeah. Um, how did she get to Dallas? I think she met this guy and they uh, they moved to Dallas because that's where he was from. Mm -hmm. um, and now I have two grandsons. Uh, her husband died about five or six years ago. All that time, she was just a full-time mom and not, not not to downplay the fact that that is a job, that is a, <laughs> a yeah. job, but uh, she, other than the, the two or three years that she was working for pharmaceutical companies, uh, she never practiced medicine. In fact, that the, the work, the, her years at med school served her well because she knows symptoms and whatever to do when those boys yeah. were when they were growing up. They are now 14 and 15 mm -hmm. uh, and she has done a magnificent job as a mother, a single mother, uh, a, a full-time mother uh, with those two boys. Uh, I've often tried to encourage her to move back here to be closer but I mean that that's another irritant of mine that most kids that grew up here and go go away to school and are successful do not want to come back here, uh, and it's mainly because even many of us here realize there's limited opportunities here in Gary. Mm -hmm. Gary has a very negative uh, reputation that most of the those kids that grew up here are aware of now, but and I and when I talk to what them one on one or in groups, I say, but you could be the future of Gary. You could turn all of that around, all those negative uh, uh, things that are, are directed at Gary and the other. Sure. And so, um, she, <clears throat> your your daughter was with your first wife. Yes. Sorry, and then but you said you got divorced and you got remarried. Yes. When did you get remarried? Uh, 
put you on the spot. Kid, kid, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I have it memorized sometimes, but yeah. uh, uh, we just celebrated our 20, 28th anniversary. Oh, wow. Congratulations. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, okay, so we're jumping around a little bit. Yes. We're back into sort of political outlook, and you were um, starting to talk about issues you were getting involved with, you know, in the Hatcher administration and then in your early career as a legislator. Um, and you mentioned health care, but were there other issues like education or, or other things that, you know, once you were getting into office or into politics that you really wanted to champion? Yes. And education was one of those. And then just municipal government, you know, that many, many cities were struggling uh, because it was the up and down with the federal uh, administration as to whether they were going to provide resources for two uh, struggling cities. Uh, but yes, those, those three mainly, uh, municipal government and how to improve that. And, uh, especially the quality of life in, of people in, in struggling cities. Uh -huh. uh, and then <clears throat> education, since I came here and was involved in education sure. for the, the beginning of my adult life, uh, that was, all. in fact, I introduced the bill in, um, at the Indiana General Assembly for Gary to change from an appointed school board to an elected school board, because that was, I think at the point there were only about a dozen uh, school corporations that had appointed school boards that, that it was mainly done to once more involve and engage the citizenry more in the education process. And if I'm an elected school board member, I'm here to try to improve the education of uh, our young people. Did you have any national political heroes or state or local as you were entering the political scene? Um, my number one hero naturally is Mayor Hatcher who just uh, left us about three weeks ago. In fact, uh, um, oh, oh, my, my biggest hero is uh, Nelson Man Mandela. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, that's just the I was in his presence once. There was an organization wow. called uh, the uh, NBCSL, National Black Caucus of State Legislators. Mm -hmm. And ironically, again, there's the Philadelphia connection. Uh, Reverend Leon Sullivan in Philadelphia, who was a very, very innovative minister. He was a preacher, and, but he started um, OIC, Opportunities Industrial Corporation that would get folk to not only do things in, in the United States, but to partner with uh, other countries, and mainly African countries for uh, uh, African-American legislators. And we went to South Africa once to visit and to establish a brotherhood of the, the go uh, state government there versus the various state governments here in the United States. And this, now Nelson Mandela is out of prison and back as the president. And uh, we, I don't even know how we finagled an, an audience with him. There wasn't a chance for camaraderie or shaking hands or whatever. In fact, they encouraged us, please do not try to, you know, talk, have a conversation, whatever. But 
just that aura when he when he walked into the room is just was something unbelievable. You know, it was like I guess the same feeling I guess is Jesus Christ walked in the, into mm -hmm. this room. I mean, it was a chill. I mean, I'm just starstruck at the fact that I'm in the same room. And there were um, a hundred other legislators from around the country, but uh, that, that I will never, ever forget. Mm -hmm. Then we moved down to modern times of Barack Obama, uh, once more saying that, oh, that's it, that's unheard of that we're going to have an African-American president and then a young man, as young as he was, and then not a national name, had only been in the Senate one term or one and a half, one term, he was in, uh, no, he was into a second term. Um, but the fact that he had that kind of charisma and that groundswell of support that you have to say he's something, someone very, very special. Yeah. Um, I guess coming to sort of when you first got involved in, in state government, uh, did you have a particular like campaign strategy at all when you first ran? I know you said you ran partly on sort of a dare, uh, but was there any strategy involved or? Yeah, my name alone. Name? That's what. That's. I mean, I. You granted, I had a lot of naysayers. Uh, uh, I, I, I never had a general, I mean, another thing about this end of, of uh, the state and mainly the city of Gary, we have not had a re person that is a Republican as an office holder um, for a long, long time. Mm -hmm. So our struggle was always uh, in the primary. Right against a, a fellow Democrat. And most years I had more, one or more um, opponents. Uh, but the, uh, the name was magic. In fact, when I first started, I, I would always approach the children and tell them, I'll tell your mother to vote for Charlie Brown. Uh, <laughs> and, and really, seriously, that's what got me over yeah. in most cases, the younger kids that was fascinated by the name. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> would encourage their parents and would encourage their parents to at least say, Is there's a Charlie Brown running? And, yeah. and so <clears throat> it wow. was all um, interestingly enough I was at a conference in California and uh, one of the speakers or panelists was uh, an attorney his name escapes me but he was the attorney for Charles Schultz, <laughs> and so I, I mean, I, 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 it was almost like begging. I said, "I'm here for only a couple of days. I certainly would like to meet." I think at that point Charles Schultz had died, and his wife was still alive. I said, "I would like to meet her, mainly to make that kind of connection." Yeah. I was older than than uh, the cartoon Charlie Brown, uh -huh. and so I said, "That you all use my name <laughs> rather than the other yeah. way around." <laughs> Uh, and he, there was some communications. He sent me a letter. He told me about how Schultz uh, extended his garage and, and made a little studio. And he personally did all of the cartoons himself there right. in, in uh, his, his garage right there on his property. Uh, 
Well, speaking of your name real quick, is your legal name Charlie Brown, or is it Charles Brown, no, or do you have a middle name? My birth certificate says Charlie Brown the third. Mostly my grandfather, my father, and and yeah, wow. it, it is Charlie Brown. <laughs> That's great. Which I used to always ask my mother, why would you give me such a silly name as Charlie Brown? Because it was a teasing point for all the kids, uh, sure. all, all of my peers back then. But I I I kiss her. Uh, I I would kiss her all the time. I said never question the wisdom of mothers because yeah. that name was worth a million bucks when I first ran for public office. <laughs> yeah. Sure, I'm sure it was. <laughs> and who was your main opponent when you first ran for office? My main opponent? Yeah. It, a guy who was elected two terms before okay. me, Raphael Fisher. But I don't, and I never did get. I guess he didn't consider doing what the mayor of the city wanted as as much as the mayor wanted him right. to consider. So they had a falling out, <clears throat> and in between my my winning in <clears throat> excuse me eighty two, another guy did one uh, or he did a half a turn uh, who who beat Raphael Fisher, the original uh, uh, representative. There right. was a guy, Jules Blake Taylor. I, th I think he still lives in um, Indianapolis. Mm -hmm. But he, he only lasted a half a term, and not even a half a term, as I think of it, because there was some dispute about his mother and father were divorced. One lived in the district within the, 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 the third house district, one did not. He must have been living with whichever parent did not live in the district, but used the address of the other. So uh, this, this House of Representatives established a, uh, a select committee to investigate the whole issue. Their findings was that he, his, his legal resident was outside of the district, therefore they unseated him and they put Rayfield Fisher, the, the one, the uh, gentleman that he beat, back in to fill that unexpired mm -hmm. term. And so then came me, the next uh, election around, that, and I defeated Rayfield Fisher for in 82 and also in 84 where he, he came, came back and tried to reclaim his seat. Mm -hmm. And what was the, what did it feel like when you first found out that you were getting elected? <laughs> well, they told me I had to shave my beard. <laughs> um, well, some of the yeah. folk, you know, that were kind of establishment types right. who were saying that you have to shave your beard, you have to uh, uh, tamp down your, your outspokenness, all of that. But that, that was not the case. I kept my beard and I... I came in with a roar and a thunder. Yeah. <laughs> uh, one of my first, I picked up the mantle for trying to establish the Martin Luther King holiday bill in, yeah, in yeah. Uh, Indiana. Resistance personified. I mean, it just was not to be done. I mean, there was just so much hatred. I, I don't know if it was all directed at him as a person. It's just right. that to name something after an African-American in, in Indiana was just foreign, you know. Mm -hmm. Three or four years, over and over again, 
I would introduce the bill and, and then by the fourth year, it passed out of the House, but then it ran into that blockade over in the Senate. Mm -hmm. This is an, I have to give you all a copy of the chapter out of Hurley Goodall's book. Hurley Goodall was a legislator from Muncie. Mm -hmm. This particular year, he and his, Hurley Goodall and his senator, um, I'm blanking on his name, had identical legislation. And uh, the, uh, the Senate version had passed, so there was no need for the House version. Uh, no, I'm sorry, it was the reverse. Uh, the House version had passed, so there was no need for the Senate version. So we had this process, strip and insert, that you had a bill that was moving through one of the houses, mm -hmm. and uh, you know you wanted to make some changes. You could get the permission of the author and the sponsor and say, I want to put some other language, I want to take all the current language mm -hmm. out and put new language in, and that's what we did in that Senate uh, bill, uh, stripped out the, the fireman's language that was in the original bill and put in the Martin Luther King language. Boy, oh boy, the Senate went bonkers over the fact that we used the process that they had been using for years. They walked out, they stayed off this, the floor for up to two weeks, I think it was, saying that this will not occur, we will not, they will, I, don't, I don't know which brought on their anger the most, the fact that we used the process that they were using and the fact that we used the Martin Luther King holiday as the, as the vehicle. The compromise came down to, uh, okay, we will make it a non-code holiday it would, that, that meant just for that one year. And then it would have to start all over again in the next session. Um, they relented and they made it uh, Senate Bill 1 and made uh, Senator Virginia Blankenbaker the author of the bill because they were so angry with me for, for uh, circumventing what was the normal process. And that's the history of uh, us getting, every, ironically, it's not much talked about much, but the national holiday was done by uh, a Gary resident, Katie Hall, and then I carried the, the national holiday only if impacted federal workers in the District of Columbia. And it was so worded that after that, every state had to enact their own legislation to make it a, a, a legal holiday. Now, did yours in Indiana then, have your, let me rephrase that, had your portion of the bill, was that before the federal one, before Katie Hall and the federal one, or was that after that? I think I think the federal one went in first. First, yeah. First, that, but that only affected federal workers. Right, right. Yeah. And very few people realize that, you know, that, yeah, the, the, they, they look at the national holiday as Dr. King's birthday, right. but in fact, who's the last state? I think it was Arizona, or there's still a holdout, I think, for making it a, a, a holiday in two, two states. So, after each time that you're reelected, the General Assembly, did you have any changes in 
and your thoughts about what it felt like to be a part of the General Assembly, or did you just kind of get used to it after a while? Well, I guess the changes came about uh, when we first took over the majority. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can achieve a lot more in the sure. majority than That's you fine. can in the minority. And, uh, and I, I don't know exactly, I think we did that flip-flop a couple of times while I was there. But I never ever gave much thought to, am I going to just stay here to run and run every two years or what? I, it was just, it just became routine. Right. Uh, and I look back on why didn't I try to have a, in, in my head or in a notebook the history of every, every year or every session, every two year period, what was attempted and what was accomplished and other little vignettes that occurred right. along the way. Um, I really, that's one thing I really, really regret that I did not take the time to keep up with as you, and, and that packet of information that you, you sent me, it indicates the basics of what I introduced, but right. then there's nothing, the, the real foundation and the guts of that is not down uh, in writing. Right. Did you change like campaign strategies at all or, or anything, or are you? No, it wasn't, okay. it, I, I, it, even though I had opposition, mm -hmm. many, most of the uh, uh, time, right. none of it was really, really serious. Yeah. Uh, uh, and that I felt threatened by any sure. of it. You know, I still had to outwardly, I couldn't right. be so arrogant or cocky as to say, hey, I'm, I'm not going <laughs> to buy, buy buttons or, or right. uh, yard signs or anything. Yeah. But uh, only, I think, one time when I knew I did not have, I, City Hall was going to send someone after me that uh, I had to really hustle. Yeah. Um, but other than that, once you get entrenched, it, it is, uh, and, and seniority means a lot. I mean, right. most, some, most, most folk that are deep into politics know, why would you change? When that you send somebody new, they have to learn the whole process. You know, it right. takes them a year to even know where the toilet is. So, <laughs> why would you change? You have a senior person who is up there in seniority, has committee assignments that are very, very important to us. So, yep. yeah, makes sense. Well, for that very first election after you won, what did you think as you were walking into the state house? I, you know what, when I walked in and when I walked out, I still had the same one thing in common. I never knew which end led to the parking lot versus, <laughs> I, I always had to go to the center and look both ways to know because it was so confusion, confusing, not keeping in mind I'm catching this elevator down, so that means I've got to go to my right versus to my left. Uh -huh. But that is a magnificent building. <clears throat> Several times we attempted to kick out the, the Supreme Court and some others to give more uh, space for the legislature. I mean, it's ridiculous. I mean, every person that has ever come down to the visit, visit during the session or whatever, and I take them to my office, they said, what? This is your office. I mean, we all cranked up. It's, you yeah. know, when you think about having to find space for a hundred people and their staff. 
So that was all, and we came so close several, a couple of times I know, of looking at building a building for the Supreme Court and all the other uh, uh, treasurer and auditor and all that, so we could at least uh, spread out and have room for uh, constituents that came down to visit. Yeah, headquarters on it. Well, how did you learn the ins and outs of state politics or, or of the General Assembly? <laughs> I get it, it was, um, you know, once more, Blind by the seat of your pants, you know. Uh, most importantly, <clears throat> the group that is the key to what we do that every, the general public is not aware of is LSA. I mean, th there's no way you could you you give them a concept and they run with it, and it's unreal. You know, I say I want to introduce legislation that says that. Gary will no longer have a school board appointed by the mayor, that we will have uh, there's six councilmatic districts in Gary, and we will have, uh, the, you have to live in each of the districts in order to be a representative on the school board. They say, well, you can't have an even number because, you know, you, they may wind up in a tie. I said, okay, then we will have one person run at large. Uh, and have a seven-person uh, district. And it took a while to get that concept through because uh, some thought it was a matter of my wanting to get uh, at the, whoever was in the mayor's office at that time as opposed to there's a large segment of the community that was saying at the same time, the school board doesn't answer to the mayor who appoints them. It doesn't answer to the parents, doesn't answer to anyone. So we need to appoint them to let them know that we can remove you. So and 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 in doing that I had to rely heavily on uh, legislative services to, to to craft and get that legislation together. Mm -hmm. Who were your political mentors in those early years? Chet Dobus, uh, who is now I think he spends most of, most of his time in Florida. Mm -hmm. uh, Bill Crawford, for sure. Bill Crawford was my buddy. Uh, boy, Bill Crawford. Uh, interesting man. No college training, but he had the wisdoms of, of Zeus. I mean, they, just plain old common sense. Mm -hmm. And Hurley Goodall. I cannot leave Hurley Goodall out, who it was a fireman from Muncie, Indiana. But you're talking about the PhD in just wisdom of the process of the legislature. And just so folksy, you know. Uh, when Hurley spoke, everybody listened, you know. Yeah. Uh, Julia Carson was there, but you know, it, that was another interesting thing. The only time we the, uh, came together was the when we had the Indiana Black Legislative Caucuses come together to mm -hmm. map out what we wanted to all make sure we were on the same page on. Sure. But from House to Senate, the, it was like never the twain shall meet yeah. uh, in, in terms, except when you, if you were fortunate enough to get a bill out of the House, you had to send it to someone over there. Mm -hmm. Do you put your fellow African American on the bill first or second? Because the Senate was like hell. I mean, they would not 
even hear a piece of legislation unless a, a Republican was the first sponsor on the bill. So, uh, and they, Lord have mercy, uh, to think about how they rule with an iron fist. I, I compare it to the U.S. Senate, you know, um, McConnell, uh, uh, even though he's got some, some real Fences to men in terms of this impeachment process, but he obviously he has a reputation of ruling with an iron fist over there. How did you know the needs and wants of your constituents? How did you interact with them? It, it is a foregone conclusion that in the off season, or even while we are in session, to have public forums that you at least invite. There are many, many uh, uh, constituents that are astute enough to know what's going on down there and, and also we have those surveys that we send out and say, what are your main interests in seeing legislation pass? Mm -hmm. Others will call or write you and say, I, I want you to support ABC, mm -hmm. but mainly through public forums where on, on a Saturday uh, at least three, two times during the year, we would invite folk in and have them voice publicly or, or to us directly what they feel should or should not be done. Mm -hmm. uh, we rely, and at the surveys, we rely heavily on mailing out to every household in the district a form listing some questions and then leaving space for them to put their own comments on. And then that is compiled by the staff and, and then it shows us the, 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 the issues that are most important to the constituents back home. Mm -hmm. okay. um, what, do you remember what was the first bill that you sponsored or at least maybe the first important yes, piece of legislation? Yes. In fact, no. I used to, I had it framed. Oh, okay. it, it was it's interesting that you raised this because it came through my best friend who is here and that I told you just retired. Uh -huh. He was at a, a shopping mall and he got the police, I don't know, somehow he, he the police in that community gave him a ticket um, or uh, it may have been someone hit his car and the police could not ticket them him because the mall and his parking lot was considered private property and that the police had no jurisdiction on that in terms of ticketing someone. And that was my first piece of legislation that says that the municipal police or the county police could do that. Uh, ticket someone for a, a, a violation or hitting, some, uh -huh. damaging someone's car on a, a mall parking lot. Mm -hmm. So that just came about because your buddy, had, yes. you had known that yeah. that had happened and that's interesting. Absolutely. Well, you've alluded to this a little bit, but can you describe the regular interaction amongst assembly members, whether that was formal or informal? How did you treat each other, at least in the House? Well, when you are in the majority, it's ironically, uh, interestingly enough, the, and 
A Republican has a bill, you want to talk about a health issue, and I'm the chair of the Public Health Committee, mm -hmm. they would come and talk about it. Well, some would, as opposed to just filing the bill and waiting to see what's mm -hmm. going to happen and saying, man, this is very, very important to me. Whether it's a Democrat or Republican, mm -hmm. could you give this bill a hearing? And vice versa. When I have one bill and I'm not, we're not in the majority, I would go to that health committee or that committee chair, whoever it was, and say, would you consider uh, hearing my bill because, and give them the reasons why, you know, this is very important uh, to, to my district. Um, so there was that interaction, and then, like I said, it, within the Black Caucus, if all of us solidify around a subject matter, um, then we, we, we knew we stood a very good chance of getting that through, especially when there are uh, eight, of, eight of us in one chamber and five in the other that were supportive of this. And if it was a very narrow margin between Democrats and Republicans, and we knew that we could uh, really get our point across, because they knew we needed that, they needed that block of votes mm -hmm. to get that subject matter uh, legislation through. Mm -hmm. But there weren't many occasions other than you know the money was money issues were always the big issue of trying to get the. Uh, uh, our our point across mm -hmm. in terms of getting more money in the budget for uh, a given subject matter, uh, and I mean it, it's the difference in night and day if you are in the majority or in the minority, and um, that that's when there was the big big struggles uh, in terms of getting things through, uh, getting money for things that were very, very important to the African-American community. Mm -hmm. Well, can you elaborate a little bit on that? Because, I mean, throughout your, you know, 30 years, you've been in both the majority and then the last few years, you know, there was a Republican supermajority. I mean, how, just walk us through that a little bit about what that looks like and felt like to have been in the majority but then in the minority as well. Yeah. Um, the, 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 the minority is not a very good, comfortable seat. I mean, it's like sitting on briar patch, um, but um, you, you find we, sh we should not throw a blanket over a party because in many instances, good-hearted good Republicans, even though they're few in number, but uh, nonetheless, they, they are some good-hearted ones that if you get their attention on an issue, that they can relate to or really accept the fact that this is harming or would be or would be helpful to a large segment of the Hoosiers, then you can you can get that point across. Um, I'm trying to think of something specific. Um, I can't think of, of something, but it's all about personal relationships too. Mm -hmm. You know, I rarely did I have ill feelings or or create ill feelings coming the other way from my Republican colleagues. Uh, you know, it was a point, it's just over the last six years that it just is what you see on the federal level was at, at, at uh, the local level here. That it used to be that 
we fuss and fight on the floor or in committee, but then go out and have a drink or have dinner together. That, that changed drastically over the last six or eight years, that it was a total separation and isolation of the parties as it is at the federal level. I don't know what brought that on, that, uh, that we just do not have that camaraderie any, any longer. Do you think there was a recognition of that, like when that was happening, or is that something you've reflected upon, or could you feel it, you know, when you were still in office? I think it was hardening of positions, and when those uh, the guys that came in that were extremists, and quote unquote, in my, in my opinion, extremists in terms of being to the right, they just felt that that's it, you know, we in the majority, and just run this thing on through here. Uh, and the, the, I think the, the greatest one was that whole issue of uh, abortion and abortion rights and, and the gun issue. The gun issue, now interestingly enough, the gun issue was not a Democrat-Republican issue because there are as many Democrats who in the South and some up here in the North that believe in this whole issue of guns, you know, so that was not a division on party lines, but it, the philosophical lines, that, that whole issue of everybody should be able to have a gun because it's in the Constitution to bear arms. Mm -hmm. But in the, in the urban areas, you got to understand and appreciate that you're not going to go hunting with the AK-47 or whatever it is, mm -hmm. but it's that whole issue of, and it's, I don't think it's that true that the NRA has a stranglehold on, on, on those folks that have that are into the gun issue. It's just that they, they, are, ish, they are saying we can't let them have an inch because then it's going to move on down the line. So that's why they're so hard-nosed on absolutely nothing dealing with guns. You don't find that in, in any chamber that uh, you're going to be able to get be, impact the gun issue. Mm -hmm. And uh, as I stated, the, the abortion issue and the religious stuff. Now, that's what I, I firmly believe that Governor Pence knew that he was not going to get a second term because of that crazy issue of, of the far-right conservative religious group uh, that he ran, he ran that uh, legislation on through about religious rights and it backfired on him in fact and and then he, he probably he is a very fortunate man that I don't know how Donald Trump Trump decided that he would select him as his running mate but it was a savior for uh, Pence that to get that offer from from Donald Trump that he wouldn't have that embarrassment of losing uh, his second term. I don't think that has happened here in Indiana that a, a governor did not get his two terms in office. Now, do you think because that was his stance with the Religious Freedom Act, and then also I know there was a lot of educational things going yes. on at the time, so you felt like he was losing support here? Is yes. that what I hear you saying? Yes, yeah. very much so. Because it was an ongoing battle, and that's why they ultimately made the decision that they would no longer elect the, 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 the uh, superintendent of public education, mm -hmm. which makes a lot of sense because 
education is usually a major plank in the governor's platform, but yet it may not, it may be contrary to what's coming from the elected person that's over education. And a couple of times, and we go way back to Nagley, I remember that name, he was elected the, the superintendent of public instruction. And I think, I don't know whether it was a money issue or what, but they, even both uh, uh, parties decided that we need to uh, eliminate the Office of Public Instruction, uh, Superintendent of Public Instruction, and let the governor select that because that's always a major plank. Mm -hmm. That failed to turn to eliminate the office back in the 70s, and now it's, we finally looped around that they finally have done that, and they waited until it was a, a, a person of the same party because they tried it with uh, the prior superintendent who was a Democrat, but they knew that that would just create total chaos trying to eliminate an office when it's simply, it will appear as though it's because it's a person of the opposite party. Well, uh, to jump back and forth, since you mentioned Pence, uh, um, what was it like to work with him or under him as governor when you were in the General Assembly? Because we've read a few articles where you've talked about that he was uh, pretty active with the General Assembly or um, that you would have some positive interactions with him. So yes. what was your relationship with him like? I mean, he was a very easygoing per, uh, governor by contrast to the one before him, uh, Mitch Daniels. I got into a lot of trouble because uh, I don't even remember what the subject matter was, but I just blurted out, uh, Lord Shorty need to come on back here and, and take care of this issue was something that was impacting the state. And one reporter caught on to that Lord Shorty issue and that became the, the talk of the, of the, of the whole uh, state house and around the, the, the state about my referring to him as Lord Shorty. Uh, he made much more sense in terms of getting his agenda through and uh, even though it, it was not always fair to both parties, but at least he had control of both houses. Even the you mean Daniels. Daniels. Yeah. Daniels. I'm sorry, yeah. but in the case of Pence, he he. I don't know whether he tried or just did not have that same influence as Daniels did in terms of getting hit both chambers that were ruled by his party to go along with his platform. Um, well, jumping back here in the relationship between the House and the Senate, um, what differences, if any, were there between members in the House and the Senate? In terms of the entire chamber or yeah. the Democrats and Republicans of the Senate and the Democrats and Republicans of the House? Just between each chamber in general. Was there a different feel or different vibe oh, between each very, one? Oh, very much so. Uh, well, and mainly because the numbers, the numbers alone means that it's going to be uh, more rancor and more because a hundred, you got a hundred opinions versus 50, at least that's cut in half. But uh, and, and also the leadership of the East Chamber, how they rule. Mm -hmm. Oh, but in the House, there's always the chatter. I mean, 
it was just like night and day when you walk into one chamber or the other because of uh, what everybody may be wanting to uh, talk about or, or get their issue across at that time. Um, but there, there are many, many occasions where Democrats in the House could not even get along with or couldn't get the, their fellow co colleagues, Democrats in the Senate, to agree with them, and was mainly because they morphed into the Republicans aren't going, if I do this, I will not be able to get my bills heard over here. That's how that chamber, the Senate chamber, ruled with the iron fist in terms of keeping even the Democrats in line versus you may want to club me over the head, but you, you can't do it but once. And uh, I'm going to get my point across, even though I may not be able to get that piece of legislation heard or not. Can you walk me through the process of generating a bill and then how you garnered support for that bill? What did that look like? Um, the, the, uh, mainly it's a matter of that the, maybe a person from Evansville is chair of a given committee. And here I am from the other end of the, of the state. How do I get him to understand and appreciate that? And he's from a very small community in the, in the southern end of, of the state versus I'm from an urban area. And that's all, I think that's mainly the, the distinction between not just the parties, but also between legislators that, that there, you don't have the same issues that I have because I'm from an urban area that suffers for lack of revenue and resources versus you're from a very small rural area that don't have those same issues. So how do, how do I get you to understand and appreciate that in the case of money for education, I need to have money for security. I may need to have those special programs uh, for kids that may be falling behind versus those same issues do not exist. Mm -hmm. we, uh, it's a matter of saying, hey, I want you to come visit. I want you to actually see what I'm talking about. And that has been very helpful. At one point for, for years, and this is back in the 80s and maybe the early 90s, we had legislative weekends in which uh, we would one area would host all the legislators. And that's a captive audience that you would put them on buses and take them, say, see, I need, see, see these roads, how beat up they are? I need this. Look at this school corporation where the buildings are falling apart. I need more money. Uh, those, and at the same time, we would socialize in the evening, but I always view those as very, very helpful to get everybody who had an interest in participating in that weekend to see what the needs are of, a, of another part of the state. That's really interesting. Did that happen often, or in uh, like I said during the eighties, yes, and maybe into the nineties, uh -huh. we flip flop every year. I think we did it every other year, and then it would be in some northern area versus a southern mm -hmm. area. Interesting. Um, and it was referred to as the, the, the legislative weekend. Uh huh. I told you that. Uh -huh. Um. 
Well, how was legislative business conducted outside of formal votes and committee meetings? I mean, it sounds like some of it was done on these like trips, but on the daily, what did that look like? On the, on the daily basis? Yeah. How, how was business conducted, you know, when you weren't on the floor voting, for instance? Well, the nuts and bolts of, of all the le uh, legislation is in the committee. The committee process drives the, the legislature. Um, and it, the important thing is to a get the ear of the chair that he will hear a given piece of legislation, mm -hmm. and then to have folk other than well, the lobbyists are important, but it's always important to have an actual constituent there to so that it's a real live uh, issue mm -hmm. and uh, interest versus those hired guns, the lobbyists to, to mm -hmm. there. So that, that has been another driving point that you really see the difference in legislators when they hear from a person that has experienced this versus just hearing it from a lobbyist. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that is key, but it's also a matter of I can't have a committee chair say, we're going to hear your bill tomorrow and I've got someone back here that can't pick up and get that 150 miles with a, a day, a less than a day's notice. Mm -hmm. So that's another thing. Can you schedule this if you have this relationship with this committee person? If you're going to hear my bill, give me advance notice so I can have some, an actual uh, uh, person in, uh, down here to testify. Did you, maybe even after the bills moving through committee and then voting on it too, did you have a sense of how people would vote prior to the actual voting or what people's responses were or was it more of a surprise when you got down to the end? No. When we have caucus meetings, uh, the Democrat caucus versus the Republican, that's where you find, get a sense for where your, your, your uh, colleagues are that are not on that committee that may have some hesitations or additional questions to, to, to clarify all of that prior to the actual vote on the floor. Mm -hmm. Well, you mentioned leadership both in the Senate but then also in the House multiple times, but what roles did party leadership play? N not out front, not in, uh, unless it's a statewide subject matter, party leadership rarely had an occasion or appearance in the caucus meetings. They may meet with the leadership of the caucus and say, you know, make sure this one goes on through or whatever. Mm -hmm. But rarely did we have visits from the state uh, party apparatus come into the caucus mm -hmm. to express the in interest or uh, for or against mm -hmm. a piece of legislation. Well, can you speak a little bit about House leadership or caucus leadership too? Like how influential in your opinion is the Speaker of the House or um, also like the, the head of the caucus? What, how did they help guide things, I guess? Well, if the Speaker happens to be a, a Democrat, then it's rare that a party member would sway away from voting the way the speaker requested you to do. Mm -hmm. And the same thing with the, with the caucus, unless there's a big divide in the caucus, 
on a subject matter like the guns. I mean, mm -hmm. that, like I said, that that is not a Democrat versus Republican issue. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is a just an issue that is just crazy that I will never ever fathom. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, when we have a Democratic speaker, I mean, we usually, unless he he. We would know in advance as to whether it's going to be a straight party line vote on that. In that instance, then we would support wholeheartedly the, the speaker and the democratic uh, issue there. And as I pointed out, rarely are there instances that we would have a split within the caucus on a given, given issue. You've again alluded to this a couple of different times, but do you think it's important to work with the other side? Or was that done frequently? Without a doubt. Without a doubt, it's important. I mean, it should not be. Granted, we have philosophical differences, but the fact still remains that whatever is going to happen is going to have an impact on the entire state. So, you know, it's a matter of using the amendment. I don't mind if we amend this to soften the bill some because you are contrary to the bill itself. Uh, it's always a matter of those partnerships that are absolutely, and that's why it's so important to, to have a, a person of a, of a, of a opposite party co-signing or co-authoring or co-sponsoring the bill that at least all caucuses, both, both caucuses will know that there is an interest in this uh, issue from both sides of the, 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 the chamber. Sure. What does the public not know about how the General Assembly operates? <laughs> Everything. I mean, <laughs> uh, uh, that's always so intriguing. Well, why, why couldn't you get your, this bill through? This is what I wanted to see happen. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's difficult to understand the, the mechanics of, of, uh, of the, le the operations of the legislature to the average person. They don't realize, mainly, they don't, cannot and do not understand the, the process of something that <clears throat> can, if I introduce the bill, it may show up, the, the speaker may put it on the calendar, but then he may assign it to a committee that's, they don't, they don't match the, the bill and, and the subject matter and, and the committee that it's assigned to. And that's a clear indication that that bill will die right away. And that's one thing that the general public does not understand. And even if, you know, the bill is heard and uh, this, the chairman has done it because this person he may need later on, but it may, the bill may not get a vote because both caucuses have, have uh, caucused on this and said, no, this shouldn't go any farther than this because of ABC. And that's a, something that's very, very difficult to, for the uh, general public to understand that these caucuses have uh, a big influence on whether, yeah, the bill has been heard, it's come out of committee, but now the entire body has to vote. And the fact that no public can discuss the bill after it leaves the, the um, committee process. You know, I, I think the average person is aware, why can't I come in? 
No, no, this is now in the hands of the 100 members of the General Assembly and all of your input was, uh, had to have been at the, the introductory level or at the um, committee level. How did your legislative service affect your family life? <laughs> well, I, I was divorced. Uh, that's one thing. Um, no, that was, that divorce was first. My wife, uh, my current wife, this is the 36 years I've been in the General Assembly. We've been married for 27 years. This is the first year that we have spent the entire year together now that I'm no longer in the General Assembly because every January through March or January through April, I'm gone and she's here. She enjoyed that. I mean, I thought it would be more of an adjustment for her, you know, that I'm here now 12 months out of the year versus, uh, so in our case, it, it wasn't that rancorous. And, uh, you know, I heard others talk about the fact that, um, my wife wants to kick me out of the house, you know, because I'm now here for the full 12 months um, versus the, the, the kind of um, freedom. And some is the opposite, uh, you know, that the, uh, the, the person retiring now has a major adjustment of not being away from the, their, their normal family life for those two or uh, three or four months. Mm -hmm. Did your wife ever come down to Indianapolis with you? Yes, but it was a rare occasion, you know, that she'd maybe come down once uh, every other year, but it wasn't like some uh, spouses that camped in down there and mm -hmm. they were regular sitting on the bench on the side. I don't, that, that was always intriguing to me how those, uh, and mainly wives, I, I don't think there was an occasion, I can't even think of one where a husband who whose uh, wife was in the General Assembly would come and be in the chamber for a large portion of the day. <clears throat> well, moving towards some of your specific legislation that you worked on and your committee work, what would you say was the most controversial legislative issue that you ever worked on, or one during your time in the Assembly? Um, the casino. The casino, casino. Okay. yeah. Yeah, because Indiana is viewed as being very, very conservative, so gaming just wasn't on the radar screen. Uh, and it took four or five years to, to finally get even the ready, um, the riverboat like, uh, language through. Uh, and I think it was mainly was, you know, they're talking about mafia influence because they feel that the mafia would be uh, having controlling control the operations of the vote and down to even that we had the votes all the votes were on the water but they had to go uh, have a schedule of going out onto the body of water uh, I mean it's like they thought the mafia couldn't swim that if they, <laughs> if they, if they, if they and Gradually, there were amendments over the years of saying, you know, like a Lake Michigan, you couldn't possibly schedule, uh, y yeah, you have a schedule, but you can't follow that schedule because that water is very choppy and unruly at times. So ultimately, we changed that to 
the, yes, the boats are in the water, but you no longer have this boarding schedule. That was always chaotic from the very beginning that people were rushing. There have been several accidents because people know that the boat leaves at 3 o'clock in the afternoon and they have waited until 2.30 to try to get there and then they got to get there and park and then there's a cutoff point. Nope, it's 3 o'clock. You can't wait. You have to wait till the next scheduled time. I mean, we finally chipped away at many of those things that were really, really ridiculous in terms of of the, the mechanics of uh, right. operation. Um, and then, uh, naturally, the, the Martin Luther King bill was one, probably the most controversial mm. bill. The one that I'm most proud of is um, the bill that me and Senator Borst uh, uh, championed, and that was the to tobacco settlement money. Mm. And uh, when it was founded that by the federal government that most of the tobacco companies um, lied about the impact of tobacco. Right. So they then had to uh, re repay all of the states X number of dollars. It was a formula for the illnesses caused by um, the people using to tobacco products. And then we we had we got billions, billions of dollars from that settlement, the state of Indiana. Sure. And then Senator Boss and I, which was rare, he's a staunch Republican, very conservative, we agreed on a bill that says that all the money that we receive from the tobacco settlement will be used in health and health-related uh, activities. Mm -hmm. We were the only state at the, uh, in the United States that did that. That you know, because everybody had various needs. I need to improve my roads. I don't have enough money for that. I need to put money in education. All of ours went into um, health and health-related activities. Well, if I can jump back real quick to the casino issue, I mean, because that was a big issue up here in Gary in particular. I know there, there are other votes throughout the state too, but how much were you involved in trying to bring or were you involved at all in terms of trying to bring casinos to Gary? Yes. In fact, it started out with, I think, um, Senator, uh, the, the, there were efforts made. Our first endeavor, and Gary was the one that championed the cause of uh, casinos. Then. Mm -hmm. um, there was a moving around, I think, ultimately, I was in the house. At that, back then in the 80s, a bill, a revenue-generating legislation had to start in the house. So that meant then that, yes, Senator Rogers currently and uh, Senator, Senator Mosby before her uh, were when they were in the House, they carried the legislation. Both of them ultimately, moved, at different periods, moved to the Senate. Mm -hmm. Still, it was a matter of the, it had to originate in the House. Then, um, still it was a big fight and struggle because many of our colleagues 
did not want to talk about gaming at all, gambling at all, because they, it was just taboo in the state of Indiana. Um, I'm losing track of what was the original question. You well, I just asked what role you had played in helping I the casinos and Gary and... After Senator Rogers left the House and went to the Senate, mm -hmm. then I carried the legislation for the two or three years, and then ultimately it passed out of the House, went over to the Senate and ran into a roadblock, and I think we passed it in a special session. Finally came to a compromise during the special session as to what will be our final uh, crafting of legislation on gaming. Mm -hmm. And I think most of it was centered around, well, who all is going to get a piece of the pie? Every, initially, everybody, nobody wanted it, but then when they saw the, all of the revenue that would be generated and brought back and left there in the local communities, it came up with, I think, 13 various communities that received the license uh, or designation for having a riverboat. And I think back to how Indiana, this is something that's not very well known, by virtue, and the state, <coughs> excuse me, when it came down to the interviewing, the legislation has passed, the interviews for who will be the license holders. Gary having two licenses and was the only community that had the two licenses because we, A, started the whole movement, B, had the greatest need. Somehow, <clears throat> the state, we selected to uh, the guy um, Barton and another company, uh, another license holder. But the state says, no, you've got two, you're going to need a big name in order to be successful. And they kind of forced Donald Trump on us. But unbeknownst to everyone, that by the virtue of Donald Trump getting that license for an Indiana Riverboat kind of saved him. I think he was going under big time at that. So he was able to parlay that license to all the finance, the banks and so forth, and say, see, I'm, I'm, I'm halfway solvent, so loan me some more money biggest mistake the state of Indiana ever made, giving him a license. Mm -hmm. that, that didn't pan out in the long run, right? Or did the other one go under? No, he sold, he, he, he wanted to get out after X number of years. Mm -hmm. So he sold his second license, his license to the guy that owned the first license. Uh -huh. and so the, the, uh, Barton had both licenses. Your legislation, which piece would you say you worked hardest on? I would say the, the Martin Luther King. Yeah. The one that I spent the most time on and then the, the number of years that mm -hmm. it took to get, get it finally through. Yeah. And the manner in which it, <clears throat> it finally went through. Yeah, that, that, was, that was the one. Right. Sure. Uh, could you go through and just, I guess, list the committees that you served on? Uh, public health. Mm -hmm. uh, over the years, or well, we have a long list of That's those. True. But like, what would you say is the most 
I think you chaired some, right? Yeah. Like, I guess what what most meaningful work came out of those, or which were most important to you oh, in terms the, of what you served? By far, the health committee. By far. <clears throat> and then I think second would be insurance because um, um, most of the health the health committee was second to ways and means in terms of the kinds of legislation that was introduced and the number of bills that were assigned to the health committee. I mean, we were always jumping because we had health, it was ways and means, health, and public policy were the three heavy committees that, that the, the, the speaker's office would assign the most bills to. And how did you first get involved with the health committee? Uh, mainly through, uh, when I went in, was it called public health? I don't know, I have to look at that. But I, I just had a natural inclination to, to, to gravitate to that because I was leaving. I, at that time, I was the CEO of the Gary Community Mental mm -hmm. Health Center. So I had a natural interest in health. Right. And, that was my first first choice of a committee. Okay. And so you already talked a bit about your, your fight against smoking in the state of Indiana. Um, what made you so passionate about trying to combat smoking? Be being on the health committee and seeing all the, the, the seeing the negative impact mm -hmm. of smoking yeah. to uh, uh, directly through people that are smoking and then the secondhand smoke was the biggest detriment and the fact that being educated on the drastic impact that secondhand smoke had on folk. Yeah. I mean, and still today I don't think many folk realize that right. secondhand smoke is, is, is just as bad as you being a direct uh, puffer. Sure. And then now this crazy, crazy thing about we got hoodwinked into this vaping thing mm -hmm. that that was a, the best thing for getting folk off of smoking, and now we find out that it has as, as much of a negative impact on people's lungs as smoking. And that was something you also fought, right? Yes. Um, let's see, another big health initiative you took part in was the Healthy Indiana Plan. Could you describe the, the general idea of the Healthy Indiana Plan? Once more, it was an effort to make sure that all of as many people as possible that currently did not have health insurance could have mm -hmm. some kind of health coverage. Right. And right before that was the CHIP program, the Children's mm -hmm. Health Program. Um, with the big, and once more, Senator Miller, God bless her, and I have not talked to Pat Miller in a while. I mean, here we are, opposite polars. I'm African-American, from an urban area and poor versus her Republican living in, in luxury in, in Indianapolis. But not a single piece of legislation that came through our committees did we did partisanship get involved in, in it at all. None was and that's I, I, you know that's something else that is truly an untold story about how is it that the two of us could not there was no partisanship at all in the whole health issue while we were respected chairs of the, of the committee. 
the biggest struggle we had was the name of the, the uh, Healthy Indiana Plan. You know, mm. we struggled with that because uh, that was the, the first time we had partisanship come in, and that was secondary to the actual bill and the content of the bill. It just was how, what will be the name of it? Sure. What about uh, another uh, health legislative issue? Can you tell me about Medicaid expansion and your role in that? Once more, it was a matter of trying to make sure that folk that did not have coverage mm -hmm. received coverage, and whether that would increase the areas of co coverage. Uh, and it was a struggle be mainly because whether the feds were going to approve it. How do we get around all right. the, 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 the roadblocks of the federal government in terms of expanding Medicaid? Everything, most things were centered around dollars. Uh, how do you pay for it? Sure. And, you know, I, I propose increasing the cigarette tax uh, to, to pay for it, and, and even gasoline tax whatever to make sure that we can uh, get insurance for as many people as possible. Boy, boy, I just thought about something. Some down there in my garage is early in the 70s, I introduced uh, legislation to say we will have single payer. Everybody will have insurance coverage. Mm -hmm. It didn't fare well, but at least I got it down to there will be a study, an interim study committee, and we produced a big old loose leaf notebook on the, the, the hows and whys of single payer system. And then he loop around 20, 20 years later, and that's the major discussion point now about. Yeah. And why do you think those proposals failed? People just would not educate themselves on it. You know, how, how, of a hundred, how many have a keen interest in health? Right. Maybe 20. But other, they're so far removed from what all is involved and the impact that not having health coverage has on, and then on directly on you, and then indirectly on, on you as an individual. Right. <clears throat> so, it, it, it's they're very difficult to educate everyone that is not directly involved, that, and that's in, in the house. I'm speaking now of the House of Representatives. And we got 13 or 15 members on the Health Committee. You still got uh, what 85 uh, who are not, and they all are over here struggling with their issues, be it. The, the Ways and Means or whatever committee and uh, and then on top of that are the, the issues and the pressure from their direct constituents about a different subject matter. Right. So that's taking them farther away from really looking at studying and getting educated on health mm -hmm. in, in, in the state of Indiana. And it takes years to, to nurture and get all, all of that into the minds and the psyche of our, our colleagues about yeah. how important this issue is. And I wouldn't limit it to just health because that's, but there are other areas in which somebody else may have been struggling for years to get it through and yet sure. having difficulty in educating those that are not directly involved. Right. Well, 
moving a bit away from health legislation, uh, we noticed in 2011 you were part of the, the big walkout in the legislature uh, due to the controversy over the power of unions in Indiana. Could you explain what was going on and, and your role in that? The unions were the uh, were integral part. We, in the Democratic Party, felt that unions are part of our lifeblood, you know, because they support us uh, with revenue and bodies. Uh, so we championed their cause. Um, it's still, the jury is out on whether we took that step too far in walking out and leaving the state in order to make sure that state police did not come after us to bring us back to the mm -hmm. chamber to pass the legislature. And I think this was over the, um, it was a specific issue uh, that was there that year over, collect it wasn't collective bargaining, it was... Um, I guess the right to work legislation. Right to work, yeah. right to work. And so our, our leadership felt that strongly about the fact that we need to do whatever is necessary to to try to prevent this from the this right to work legislation from passing. Uh, there were times when we stayed off in caucus for days, but that didn't mm -hmm. fare too well. And so finally, it was this concept of get out of the state of of Indiana, and mm -hmm. uh, we we went to Urbana. This is the result of that. <laughs> oh my gosh. That is really wow. funny. That is amazing. <laughs> that's that's uh, Pat Bauer. That's Wynn Moses, and that's it. I don't know how he's selected the three of us to, oh, to, so to harpoon us like that, but that, that was all centered around us oh uh, leaving, leaving <laughs> over the right to work uh, legislation. <laughs> so do you remember like the specific person that first mentioned the idea of like, like walking out of there? Or? I don't, I don't know which union rep. Okay. It was always a matter of them talking to Speaker Bauer about right. this, this okay. whole issue. And I, I don't know which ones finally got his ear. Uh, yeah. if, 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 in fact, we can't stop it from being voted on, then right. you need to get out because you can break quorum. Right. Now, today, with the numbers, it, it, any piece of legislation like this would zoom through both houses because... Yeah. Uh, the numbers that they have is the super majority. Sure. See, moving on to another legislative topic, um, it appeared that, as you've already mentioned earlier, that you're uh, against a lot of pro-gun legislation. Could you talk about the debates surrounding guns in the General Assembly and your role in those debates? Um, most of the debates, debates have centered around just the Second Amendment, that mm -hmm. we have a right to bear arms. Right. But the forefathers did not. Yeah, they say you need to be able to protect your home and your family. But the, uh, back then, they, they had single-shot muskets. 
you know, so it wasn't a matter of you could then have a weapon such as the AK-47 that you're not going to use for hunting or, or protecting your family. So that's the big issue that there is a segment of the community that firmly believes that we should not change anything about that Second Amendment right even though in their heads, in the individual heads, they know that there should not be the availability of, of military weapons and so forth that many, you see many guys carrying. And some states have been thoroughly convinced by the NRA, but you need to take that a step farther that you should be able to uh, have an, uh, weapon, you can carry a weapon and don't have to conceal it. You can carry, you can carry a, a machine gun or a rifle and strap it to your back and walk down the street. You can even carry it in, in the church. And now, I mean, that incident in, I don't know what state it was in, they had the video on television just recently about a guy walked into a house of worship and he was shot and killed by parishioners that had their guns with them in church. And so, what? I think it's Texas. Yeah. So that strengthens their argument that right. we should be able to carry guns out. We shouldn't have to go go through the gun permit process. We should just be able to carry our weapons wherever we want to. In the school, we had the big issue of even school buildings and school property at one point. And then we had another example of why that shouldn't happen because right up here in Northwest Indiana somewhere, a guy was at work and he was ang angry about something and went out to the trunk of his car uh, and pulled out a gun and shot and killed some folk, uh, some of his co-workers. So there, it appears as though sometimes it, it, it makes sense, but other times it does not make sense. Uh, and especially the arguments when it came down to um, being able to carry a, a, a weapons to uh, the workplace that he's saying, well, I want to go hunting right after work, so why shouldn't I be able to have my weapon in the trunk of my car? Because, in fact, there was an exclusion at one point for these electronic plants and gov many government facilities that they're saying, no, you can't have that weapon. And on the park, in the, even though you have it locked in the trunk of your car, it should not be on our properties. And those, all those have been shot down, uh, no pun intended, uh, by virtue of the stranglehold that the NRA and other gun groups have on not just uh, the various state legislatures, but on the federal government as well, on this whole issue of uh, guns and where and how they can be handled. And would you say that, uh, you know, compared to when you first entered the General Assembly, has that strength for the, the gun lobby increased or decreased or increased. stayed the same? Uh, oh, increased because yeah. now Indiana has passed a law that says mm -hmm. that you can carry them into houses of worship. You can mm -hmm. carry them. I don't think we've, have we done the one about you can walk down the street with it exposed, strapped to your hip? I don't, no, I don't think we've done that. But it, it's coming. It's coming. It's a matter of time. Let's see, also from researching your legislative career, it seems that uh, racial equality was a subject you're working on a lot. 
and you were not shy about you know bringing up the issues in the legislature. Could you, could you tell me about what was going on, uh, you know, throughout your career and and uh, you know, how you were trying to you know bring awareness to those issues? I guess it goes back to the the whole Martin Luther King issue of, mm -hmm. of getting folks to understand, even though he had been demonized by uh, J. Edgar Hoover as mm -hmm. being a socialist and a commie and all that jazz. But they was trying to, <clears throat> and his he was he was African American, but his appeal was for all people that were of lesser statue or, or uh, with uh, the ability to, to, to afford some some of the things that were just basic human human rights to be able to feed their families and so forth. Sure. So those, those kinds of things stay with you forever and a day. I grew up very poor so and I know of the struggles uh, uh, of uh, just making it uh, through da uh, daily life and all of those things, were integral part of my life and were very important in terms of my saying that everyone should have a uh, the equal opportunity to, right. to live a very uh, fruitful and uh, quality uh, life. Sure. Uh, did you notice a change in racial attitudes from the start of your career to the finish of it? Well, we still haven't. Yes, there's been changes, but there's still a long way to go. Very long way to go. As is witnessed uh, by the president ripped the, the the scab off. I mean, it is still amazing to me. Most of the followers of of Donald Trump today seem to be the very poor and disenfranchised white folk that are struggling in life, but. They, it had kind of, they had been forced to be very quiet about the fact that I'm scared that African Americans or Mexicans are going to be the majority and going to take over, uh, they may take my job from me. That had been kind of submerged, but now they feel that they now have that opportunity. They should be able to voice that freely, that I don't think... That back to the segregation days. I don't want him living next door to me. I don't want them to have an opportunity to work next to me. And all of that Donald, Donald uh, Trump is exacerbating and making them feel that they should be able to, to uh, voice their p opinions in any way they want to, such as the, the Richmond situation the other day and the Charlottesville situation. All of that's coming up more and more because of the rhetoric that, that our president throws out there. Uh, granted, other than those public forums, he has kind of softened his position when he, when he opened up with, um, we're going to close the gate on, on Mexicans coming into the United States. At least some of that has, it, it, I guess within his heart it's still there, but he doesn't verbalize it as much as he had been before, except when he gets that platform. I think he just goes, wow. It's like a, a drug to him. He He's he an addict, and he gets that boost, a shot in the arm, and when he's before his, all those folk that marvel at him. I got kind of carried off with the subject of 
how do you, how do these poor folk feel that this man who says he is a billionaire have a can, can uh, have something in common with them? It's not the matter of that he's concerned about how they whether they have a job or can meet uh, make ends meet. It's a matter of the 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 the. the, the The fact that I don't think he has much respect for minorities, uh, all kinds, and now he's now opened up the, the channels for for hundreds and thousands of more to come out and voice your choice because you have me as a leader of all of this, and you can feel free to express your uh, those opinions that you have uh, submerged. So, sure. Um, so, how have you seen? Uh, the, the national movements affect uh, things on the state level in Indiana or while you were in the General Assembly? How have you, how have you seen this evolution of sort of you know, changes play out? Oh, with, without a doubt, um, the salvation for racial minorities, it, it's still kind of under the surface, the fact that right now, and it based upon if we were to, to get a correct census count, we would probably see that people of color are the majority in this in the United States today. And that's what the whole white race is afraid of, that we will no longer be the majority and someone else will be in charge. Well, what's wrong with that? If, the, if that is the, the, the way the, the figures are, why not that? But and I, I, I can halfway understand that. I wouldn't want to lose. I, I wouldn't want to be in the majority, minority if I've been in the majority all this time. But you got to go with the flow. I mean, if that's what happens, so be it. And, but yet, and because that's, when you look on television, when you look on in any boardroom, when you look at any place where the what is the hierarchy of that place, and it's going to be white males. Now, women are, are, are also uh, raising hell. I mean, I was shocked at Obama's comments the other day about if women ruled government, we'd be in much better shape than we are right now. Now, probably this, you know, he did not elaborate on that, but at least the point is there that women have been left out of so many opportunities and in, 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 uh, places. And so have uh, racial minorities. And that's turning around now, slowly but surely, and it's not acceptable to those folk that were at one point the majority. And that is white males just cannot accept the fact that uh, in, in, in this major boardroom, it's going to be some women. In this boardroom, they're going to be some men. How long then will it take for them to be the majority in that boardroom? Same thing in the workplace. Uh, you know, he's going to take my job. He's just getting the same opportunity that you got years ago, that your, your forefathers received years ago. And that's hard thing to get across to uh, the average Joe. 
Well, you mentioned earlier, too, and of course, the Black Caucus has been around for a long time in Indiana politics. And I know that you had numbers, you said, where you could, you know, move legislation or, or yes. prevent it going through. But, you know, throughout your tenure, did you ever feel like you had been discriminated against in the General Assembly based on race? No, not on race, but on the issues that I raised, which is, well, I guess maybe the same thing, that they, they don't want to support this Martin Luther King legislation that happens to be introduced by an African-American because of what they feel, they feel threatened by that, that subject matter. I, I've ne I have never felt personally that he's not going to speak to me because I am an African-American. Or they're not. They want. They want, don't want to be on this committee because I'm the chair of the of the committee. Well, looking at uh, the Democratic Party and and the changes that have happened over time, uh, we read that in, in 1992 you were pretty disappointed with the Clinton administration uh, regarding the relationship with the African American community, uh, and you were considering at one point you know, voting for Ross Perot, for example. <laughs> Uh, what do you think of the state of the Democratic Party today, both on the national level as well as in the state of Indiana? Very disappointed on the national level by virtue of this. And I guess, once more, it's partly our fault, our, the African Americans and Hispanics, the fact that all, the, all of the African Americans and Hispanics running for president have been drummed out by virtue of the set of rules that we were there at the table, maybe in a smaller majority, minority, but had an opportunity then to say, not knowing that by virtue of my voting for these rules, it's going to impact us farther down the line that will force us out because we can't meet all of these criteria. And I, I, still, I don't know the full background on why these set of rules were set up that you had to meet these certain thresholds or you could not be on the debate stage. I didn't even realize that some of the, it, it's sad that nationally, how many, if I don't know, what about John Q. citizens on the, on the street that does not know that, that uh, the Bennett is still in the race, that uh, several others that are not on the stage are still out there campaigning, and yet will they get an equal opportunity to, be, to get back on the stage or even get some votes? Uh, because, you know, it's just out, it's, it's no longer in the public's purview that there are other folk of that 20, many of them are still still there. And yet you just do not hear that they're, they're not household names anymore. Sure. And what about in the state of Indiana? The same thing. Um, how, how did um, um, Barack Obama win the state of Indiana? It's very, very conservative state. Uh, so that meant that for, for that one occasion, did X number of Republicans say, I'm not going to follow the Republican doctrine, I'm going to be an individual and vote for him because I think he will make a good president, or what? Uh, uh, or is it that they're, they're, they're not just changing for that one time for Barack Obama, but now they 
going to be more to the center in terms of their thinking, uh, which is going, I think Indiana will be one of the real test cases for, in, in the presidential election, you know, as to, is the turnout going to be there and will the majority of the turnout be for um, Donald Trump or will it be for a native uh, Hoosier, Pete Buttigieg, who coincidentally, I, if the election were tomorrow, I'd vote for Pete Buttigieg, which is another interesting question that needs to be researched. When, how long ago, or how did it happen now that some marketing, those marketing firms surveyed the average citizen and say, will you accept commercial on TV that has an interracial couple on it? Will you accept the commercial on TV that has a, 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 a gay couple on it? I mean, it just seemed to come out of the blue that now you, when you're watching television, it's commonplace to see a commercial with an, inter, an interracial couple or a gay couple. How did they determine that? And it obviously, their, their marketing, their survey results showed that, and it has been sustained because you don't see folk, folk not buying those products. It had, I guess, the, those companies hadn't complained that I need to snatch that commercial because my, the, 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 my product uh, being purchased is going down. And then you move on to the Chicago situation. Never in my wildest dreams would I have thought that the, the mayor would win because she was openly gay. Yet, the third largest city in the country has accepted a gay woman as the, uh, a mayor. And you find now that, you, it, obviously, there are lots and lots of gay people that were in the closet, that weren't, they were just going about their life and not letting folks know about their personal choices that are now coming out. And I look at that, that genius young man over there in South Bend. Uh, I'm, I'm telling you that I think he stands a very, very good chance of being the nominee for uh, President of the United States. Interesting. There, there is a, you've heard most of the talking heads say, uh, he can't make it because he won't get past South Carolina. Because South Carolina, the majority of the primary voters are uh, Democrats and African Americans. I don't, I don't believe that. Um, I know they, they, they want to hang their hat on whatever this mysterious incident that occurred when he first ran for uh, mayor and he fired the police chief over, a black police chief over some incident. And that mushrooms and morphs into a national uh, sentiment over whether, in fact, he can be um, president. I am pleasantly surprised and happy over this whole issue of accepting a person for who they are rather than that is something that is unacceptable because the Bible says man, Adam and Eve, not Adam and Adam. <coughs> So, um, Pete Buttigieg is going to be a test. He's not going to go away, even if he, he doesn't become president. He's, he's going to, 
he he and and Laurie um, Whitefoot, is Whitefoot. Whitefoot mm -hmm. has opened the door, and the fact that they have such a following, uh, it's going to be intriguing as to what happens, and and it's going to filter on down to think about all the kids that are bullied in school because they are gay, um, and and don't want it to be out there, you know, they're just bullied because their classmates kind of have an inkling of this or whatever. But the world is changing. And this is one change that, you know, I, I am pleasantly happy and surprised about. So the next topic I want to touch upon was uh, about the, uh, it appears that in 1995 you wanted to abolish the death penalty. Um, what was going on at the time in the legislature about that topic? Two episodes right here in mm -hmm. Gary. Uh, the little girl, even though that was that was just over the top, when the, the little girl stabbed the old, the lady who opened up her house to them, mm -hmm. and and then another case of a guy who I have regular contact now with who killed a police officer in a bank robbery. Mm. But why should we make a decision about taking a life for a life? I mean, that, that, that to me just does not sit well, that we should make those kind of decisions. And then mainly from the standpoint it was so lopsided that they mostly African Americans and racial minorities were on death row. That was my major, major interest. And then the fact that also right at that time it was a matter of several groups were finding out that they were not the guilty party or they did not get a fair trial but before getting there on death row. Sure. Even though I'm contrary to our um, county prosecutor, the highest office over here, he's in favor of, of, the, of the death penalty and he's an African American, mm. but, you know, that's his his choice, but I am I am opposed to the death penalty. Was then in '95 and still opposed to it. Yeah. The question has often been raised with me: Well, what if it were uh, your daughter or your loved one or a close friend of yours was shot and killed or, or harmed by someone? Would you still have that position? Yes. I don't think that we should take someone's life because of something that they've done. Uh, I guess uh, the last topic I wanted to, to discuss was you had legislation for teen suicide prevention. Um, can you tell me about how that legislation came about and perhaps its impact it's had on the state? At one point, there was a period where there was a, an exorbitant number of, of teen suicides or mm -hmm. attempt suicide. Most of it centered around uh, self-respect self, uh, and bullying. Mm -hmm. You know, the kids were just not feeling good about themselves and were making serious efforts to take their own lives. Uh, I, I, I said there should be, I felt at that point and still feel today that we need to provide more services and more revenue to educate and um, um, direct kids to the point where they have more self-respect 
and and then that they should be able to, especially the bully, the bullies should be the ones that are getting more attention as to the hows and whys of you may make the decision to bully. It, they don't feel good about themselves, you know. Every, it's a matter of same way it is with uh, racism. The, most of the people that want to uh, look down on a, a class of people, a race of people, it's because they don't feel good about themselves. Everybody wants to be able to have their foot on somebody else's neck. And the same thing with the, the kids that are bullying. They, they don't feel good about themselves. They are, they are doing that because it takes the attention away from them and whatever their shortcomings may be. So why not provide some services or some training or some um, other other things that are needed to get rid of that feeling of no uh, self-respect. Mm -hmm. And I know so this was in 2010 when you uh, sponsored this legislation. Did you notice sort of an uptick in the in the problems going on with with teen suicide at that time, or was it always pretty persistent? It was. I think it was consistent across okay. the board. It's just that. He said, now is the time to at least, let's get more attention right. to this. Sure. Um, I guess one other question. What do you think was the biggest hurdle you had to overcome while you were in office? The ups and downs, the, the peaks and valleys of being in the majority mm -hmm. and out of the majority. Like that, that's one of the reasons why I left this time. I said, boy, after 36 years and we keep going up and down, and now it appears as though the supermajority is the thing now. And you know, you cannot even legitimately or at least equally debate or, or talk about a subject matter because it's like you're not even there. Um, you know, they don't have to, don't pay it don't have to. They don't pay attention to you at all because they've got the numbers. Right. They may get a couple of peel-offs, just like the whole debate on whether the U.S. Senate is going to support um, these impeachment articles. Uh, many of them within know that they, that is something that needs their attention and their vote, but then they want to go along to get along. And it doesn't make any sense anymore. There should be a, another vehicle for us making decisions right here in Indiana uh, and avoid having issues like this is, uh, of the super majorities that just means that it's just one side, nothing else. You just said you sort of decided not to run again in, in the last election. Um, was that a hard decision for you? Is that something you had been thinking about for a while? Or what was your thought process there? Well, two things. Uh, I'm getting up there in age. And that 150-mile trek every, every uh, uh, week uh, was weighing on me. Mm -hmm. this, I, I, I'm the, and the age thing is just mine personally. I don't think that a person should be removed or not considered for office because of their age. Because the, you got to think about all the experience that you're losing by virtue of saying that this person should not be considered or shouldn't be able to run again because of their age. But the main issue with 
it comes a time where uh, you, you need to have a, there needs to be a training ground and allowing for, and I, I regret the fact that I did not have a mentee that I could bring along uh, to, to this point of saying that, okay, now you, you have seen what I have done, you've heard what I want to do. Now, if that is your desire to do this, understand and appreciate all the pros and cons of that and the good, good and bad that comes out of it. But uh, I, I just felt that it was my time. And I, I think about 36 years, and there were only, I think, maybe on, there were five that had more time. I know both Bill Crawford and um, uh, the guy that was Ways and Means that left a couple of years ago, right after Bill Crawford, I can't think of his name. There were, they, you don't find folks serving that many, that number of years in the, anymore, you know, either by choice or the fact that they are, uh, 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 they lose to someone else um, for whatever reason. But 36 years is a long time in one, one place. Mm -hmm. How would you summarize your time overall as a state legislator? It was an, an enjoyable experience, be it in the minority or the majority. The fact that you impact lives the, in the manner in which you do as an individual state legislator and the fact that <clears throat> many, many people are aware of that and they voice their um, pleasure or displeasure at what you may have done, may do or have done in, in that period of time. I enjoyed the, 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 the camaraderie being uh, over the years. I miss the people there, but the process, uh, I. I just felt it was time to give that up. Do you have a favorite story or anecdote during your time as a legislator? <laughs> um, favorite story. Senator Larry Borst and I, uh, it was the last night of the, the General Assembly and we were debating, there was a debate on the tobacco settlement uh, issue. Before the, sometime during the committee process, uh, and everyone, do you, are you familiar with the name Larry Bowles? Oh, mm -hmm, yeah. He was iron pants. I mean, Larry, you, he, he was very smart. He was a veterinarian, but he knew the numbers. He was always the chair of the Senate Finance Committee. When we were meeting on the Tobacco Settlement Committee, I, I, and that was my first encounter directly. I had always known the name and heard the name Larry Boyce. And one day we had, were having a discussion in the committee about it, about the, the issue. And I said, Larry, before this is all over, I'm going to have you wearing an earring and a, with a beard. And I'll always refer to him as my brother. Uh, at, the, at, the, at the vote, the final vote, I think it was the last bill, the, the, right before midnight on the last day, and Larry was up presenting the bill uh, to the Senate. And he stopped mid, 
and if you're not familiar with this, the, the state senate, you know that they're very stuffed, stuffy. It's very stuffy chamber over there. I mean, they don't go off the record on anything. And Larry said, it stopped mid-sentence and said, oh, I see my brother has entered the chamber. And he continued to present the bill. One of the senators, I don't know whether it was By Simpson or Rose Antis at that point, walked up to him and gave him an earring. And he clipped it on his ear. Now, that was unheard of in the stuffy uh, Senate to have that kind of jubility going on in the middle of all the... I still can't believe that none of the steel cameras or the, the, uh, the, the stations captured that moment. I, I have not been able to find any, any uh -huh. of that. But that, that to me was a, a, a cameo moment. I mean, that was a minute, a moment to capture forever in a day. That's funny. It's a good story. What lessons, if any, did you learn? That everybody's an individual and that I may be angry as hell at John because he won't, he did not or would not support my legislation and vice versa, he bring up something like the gun issue and I, it's very distasteful to me. But the point is that somewhere there's something that we have in common and that I, there's no such thing as permanent enemies, just permanent interests. You, you mentioned this at a couple of different points, but do you have any specific regrets as a legislator in terms of legislation or just in general? Regrets about what? A piece of legislation? Yeah, or, or something maybe you weren't able to do or something that happened or... Yes. That, uh, you know, all the years of fighting for no smoking in Indiana, we are finally being able to get it through that you cannot smoke in a public place. I still, as was walking out the door, still trying to get all places that you there's no smoking in, in Indiana. And that's the one thing I regret not being able to get through, that there should be no... I see, now we're backing up because I see there's now the whole thing of vaping and they're saying, you know, but I sure wish we could or someone would pick up the mantle on this whole issue of in bars and restaurants and in the, in the casinos that you still, there should not be any smoking. Even though I was an integral part of the casino, uh, riverboat legislation, I never, I have never gone for the purpose of gaming because of the smoke. I walk through or have meetings there or <clears throat> In the case of the uh, the horseshoe up here, you have to go through the venue if you're going to go to the concert hall. But I, because it's still a trip to me to walk out of that place and your clothes are reeking with that smell. You know, you have to leave them in the garage and not immediately hang them back up in your closet because of that the smell of smoke. Um, and that is one of my biggest regrets, not being able to say that Indiana is totally smoke-free. What, in your opinion, is the most important work of the Indiana General Assembly? Making sure that every citizen, we improve the quality of life 
for all Hoosiers that we do no harm and that we absolutely make sure that there are laws that can be staying the test of time. What advice would you give to future legislators or even current legislators in office? Um, hold on to what your, your beliefs are and make sure that you understand and appreciate the fact that there's going to be, there are going to be disagreements and that you're not going to get 100% on, on it, but accept the fact that uh, we all are there to represent our constituency and that whatever you are doing, it is what the majority of your constituents want done. We just have just a few questions here left because we have been at it for a while, but how would you say the state of Indiana has changed over the course of your lifetime, or at least since you've been here in the mm -hmm. 60s? Um, as it relates to the, the General Assembly or outside of Just the, the state in general. Well, you don't see the, the outward hostilities between groups, you know. There was a period of time when I, I would not dare think of going to, um, where is um, Foley from? What was that community that was noted for African Americans been not to go through there? Uh, mm. Wherever Ralph Foley was, was a state representative. I mean, it was a running joke that, you know, African Americans, but there, there, obviously there's been a softening of views there. I, 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 I still maintain that we need to uh, accept each individual as an individual human being. And don't just look at the color of my skin, look at what's inside of me. How would you say the General Assembly has changed? Uh, outside of being a, have a super, super majority. Um, the, <clears throat> there have been many rule changes that make, you know, that makes things more palatable in terms of the whole process. I still maintain that we should be uh, uh, like other states, not trying to cram everything into that three and a half months. Uh, spread it out, uh, even though uh, many of my colleagues uh, don't want to be full-time legislators, and mainly because concerned about what it would cost us. But it makes much more sense to me to say that we work year-round to, to do improved lives and, and issues for people rather than rushing through things, in, especially in this, this short session. I mean, it's impossible for you to do a thorough and good job when you know that you only have this two and a half months to do it. So why not become a full-time, like Congress does, like many of the states, uh, uh, our neighboring states do, that we work at these things year-round. Okay. What, if any, enduring qualities do Hoosiers still have or hold dear? Where did the name Hoosier come from? That's one, that's a major question. Yeah, well, no one still has a full answer there. <laughs> and... Uh, Granted, we are all, the, each state is different. I mean, outside of the in, in, inter, each county, is, people have different views. Mm -hmm. 
every state have, have different views. And I think Indiana has held on to the, the fact that we are Midwest and uh, that we have different, we're different from uh, Ohio and Illinois and Kentucky, that we are still uh, people that believe that we should be protective of our basic rights and beliefs and that we have come a long way in terms of getting the negative things like the home of the Ku Klux Klan um, and made those folk that have those extreme views, we have them kind of submerge those people. Uh, even though that may not be rather than trying to get them out of those, we force them into a smaller uh, settings where they, they're not as vociferous with those views and points of view that they may have. But they are resurfacing, I think, and it's mainly because of our president. And they, there is a feel that they are unleashed again and they can do and say whatever they want to. Uh, what do you want Hoosiers to know about their role in relation to the function of the General Assembly? That they have as much power as they want to have. That that individual vote means a lot. And that they should feel free to have contact with their individual senator or representative on something that is of, of very importance and value to them. I mean, I often tell folk, you don't know how powerful you are, that while I'm sitting there in the Indiana General Assembly and my staff comes to me with a, a list of stack of phone messages and all of them are centered around, most of them centered around one subject matter, something that I had not been giving much attention, but I said, boy, I better find out more about this. If the, all of my constituents are saying yay or nay on this particular subject matter, I think that the, those that are outside of the uh, donut of Indianapolis really don't pay much attention to the general workings, only when it's something that will impact their pocketbook or their health. And yet still, if I'm back here, and I have a, a forum and, and say, I need all of you to place these calls or at least to vote on this issue. They still don't think of, don't realize the importance of that because they're so far removed distance-wise from Indianapolis and don't realize that still you have as much impact as that person that lives right there in Indianapolis it, you just need to take advantage of it and use that power. Okay. Well, that was really the end of my questions, but uh, or our questions rather. But I wanted to ask you earlier. You mentioned uh, an early memory about politics of your mother crying when FDR had passed away, and then of course of Mayor Hatcher asking you to join his administration. But when did you decide to be a member of the Democratic Party? When did you come into that specifically? That, and that's an interesting question when um, of late you hear more about decades ago the Republican Party was the one where African Americans were members of and I don't 
even I haven't researched when did that change occur that we left the Republican Party and joined the Democratic Party and what were the issues then that were so germane to us that we were in the Republican Party and, and what happened that flipped us over. I haven't a clue about what brought all that on. It's just now it's like Hatfields and McCoys that um, we seem to clash uh, and what will bring us closer together that we no longer rely on party labels to determine what's good for the whole state or for the United States of, of America. And something that we all need to work on. Why do we have parties, two parties, and mainly two parties, some states have three or four, but we basically have two parties that seemingly clash rather than sitting down and saying, what is it that we can do to bring us closer together? Or what is the compromise? What is that middle ground for the two of us? Ben, did you have any more specific questions that we... No, not, not off the cuff, no. Well, we've asked you a whole lot of things. Is there anything we haven't covered that you want to talk on or elaborate on at all? No, I think we've covered the waterfront now. <laughs> okay. Um, well, a couple of things. One, if you are comfortable now signing the consent yes. and release form, if there's anything, I mean, I don't think there's anything that you said you wanted to cut out, but if there is, please make note of it or we can come back to that later as well. No, I can't think of anything that I would want to. Yeah. Here, do you need a pen? I'll get, I'll okay. get this back. Oh, it is about taking you out to lunch? Well, that we can, we certainly do need to eat and uh, we probably need to be on the road in about an hour or so, but if you have recommendations or want to go with us, that would be totally fine as well. Uh, now, is this... The top line is yeah. where my signature is going. Well, the signature is actually on the back here, and I can even fill. This one is just your name there, printed. Printed, okay. And then I can put your address underneath it. Um, and then you would just check there, no restrictions if you're fine with that. And then on the back is where a signature or a signature right up there up here yeah and they date that yeah 124 mm -hmm. now here the first month of the new decade is out the window almost mm -hmm. and then printed name below that sign that as well and if you want to cop a copy to keep yourself there's a second copy there too that's it yep that's it and we, we Ben and I will sign that one um, but if you want to fill that out for your record too we can also okay. sign that one
When did you say you did Erling Rogers? She was last year. I want to say it was about December of 2018. That seems about right, I think. But what I also wanted to tell you was we interviewed Pat Miller on Tuesday. And she told us to tell you that she is trying to lose some weight so she can fit into her bikini. <laughs> so. <laughs> We were supposed oh, to pass Patricia. that message along. <laughs> so, here, and we'll sign this one and yeah. take this one for you, too. Yeah, for her. What's it her going when she retired? <laughs> I, I said, I need to give her some gag gifts. I gave her uh, a bikini. Because a bikini, she, oh, boy, you're talking about someone else's. But was very, very rigid. It was difficult for anyone around the state house to understand the relationship between me and Pat Miller. Uh -huh. In fact, one time, uh, we it was during the summer, and we, uh, she was in Larry Boyce's office, and she called me over there, and uh, no, no, it was on the, t Larry was ill, and he was at home. And she called him on the phone and told him that the two of us were having a meeting. And he said, Charlie, what is this? Well, you and Pat got a thing going on? <laughs> Something like that. And his very, very, very dry humor. Uh-huh. Do you have that the copy here? Uh, Did you have an encounter with, did you ever meet Larry Boss before he? No, not before he passed away. Um, I read his book, though, which was really interesting, and that gave a lot of insight into, because he was a horse guy, right? And he wanted the paramutual yeah. uh, betting. Yes, yes. So, but that was an interesting book. In fact, I think, yeah, in fact, in his book, he did a chapter on our big, um, the issue of the tobacco settlement. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's a lot of really interesting information in that. Have you uh, glanced through uh, Hurley Goodall's book? I have, uh huh. And I had wanted, I talked with, um, you know, I think he's sick. Very sick. And I talked with his caregiver yes. several times. And th this was back very early on, a year and a half or so ago. And he had thought that he might be able to do an interview. And then he kind of decided against it, which, yeah. you know, that's fair. I understand yeah. that. But. Yeah, I've read his book, and um, he, I was really hoping to talk with him, too. But. He had a whole chapter on our struggle on the Martin Luther King bill. Yeah. Harold mm -hmm. yeah. is a good writer, too. Mm -hmm. I mean, and once more, I, I, I'm angry with him for him not telling me that initially. You need to jot down mm -hmm. ex exceptional encounters yeah. and moments and so mm -hmm. forth to prepare for writing a book. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, I, I would, was hoping to talk with him, but was unable to. Yeah, so, that's, that's really sad, too, mm -hmm. that he, his, his dementia is really, I mean, mm -hmm. I, I don't think, even though I've talked to him on the phone a couple of times, he doesn't really know who I am. Right, uh, right. So, well, I'll go ahead and turn these off then, and we can pack up here. Um.